0: Well, good morning. Uh, today we're starting a new series um, in the first half of Matthew chapter five. Um, and today uh, I'm gonna introduce the series uh, with a bit of a, a big picture context and an overview. Uh, but first, um, does anyone, anyone read these or seen these films? The Hunger Games um, is an incredibly successful series of novels. Um, and films that managed to knock Harry Potter off Amazon's all-time bestsellers list in 2012. Uh, As some of you may have heard of it, some of you have read it. It's one of a number of contemporary dystopias, um, these kind of bleak and uncomfortable visions of the future. Um, We've got uh, a few others, Divergent, The Maze Runner, all from the last few years, Um, If you've spent any time uh, with teenagers recently or you are a teenager, you'll probably be familiar with some of these. Now, a friend of mine once had a conversation um, with some of her students who claimed that this novel was new or unique to their generation. It expressed something of a particular political angst that uh, you adults wouldn't understand. Uh, My friend and I chuckled about this because our teenage years were filled with um, reading exactly the same kind of stories. Um, Here's a few more uh, that you might know. The Matrix, 1999, uh, Brazil, um, The Handmaid's Tale, both early 1980s. And actually, these novels go back a long way. Uh, We've got uh, going back right the way to um, uh, actually the middle of the Victorian era. Uh, These pictures of the future, each author writing an imagined future to show up something about what's wrong with our world now. They're popular because they tap into our contemporary consciousness, a sense of powerlessness or hopelessness in a changing world. Attacks in Orlando, the murder of MPs. These books resonate with our experience because they tell us something about the human condition. Now, the Bible has a similar picture of fallen humanity Only the Bible traces it back to its root, a world which has turned away from God. From the beginning, we see that a rejection of relationship with God and his loving rule leads to all of these problems that plague us. Only two chapters after God calls his creation very good, there's jealousy and murder as Cain kills his brother, there's violence and boasting as Lamech gloats to his wives about killing someone. And there's horrible pride and idolatry as the Tower of Babel is built. But amidst all of this frustration, God is at work to make everything right and to bring about his kingdom where his rule will lead to perfect blessing for his people. So in Genesis 3, he promises to deal with evil once and for all uh, by sending a man uh, the seed of a woman. In Genesis 12, he promises that every nation in the world will be blessed through the offspring of a man called Abraham. And as Abraham's children grow in number and become a nation of their own, God gives them a land where they can enjoy living under his rule and enjoying his blessing. He rescues them from the tyranny of slavery in Egypt for the freedom of a life of blessing with him. But if you've been here these last few weeks, um, as we've looked at the book of Numbers, we see that this blessed nation rejects God once again. We've seen this faithless generation struggling for 40 years in the wilderness, rebelling against God's rule, complaining about food, We've got to wonder, haven't we, where is this promised life of blessing going to be found? Where is God's kingdom? Where is the answer to all of our contemporary worries um, about the world going wrong? In Numbers, there's a bit of a cliffhanger ending. Now, I'm not gonna do an entire uh, Bible overview. Uh, We're gonna fast forward about a 1,000 years. God's people make it into the land, but we finish the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, still waiting for this kingdom to appear. And as the New Testament begins, things don't look promising. The land is occupied by Romans. There are a few zealots, revolutionaries, who want to bring God's kingdom by force. They're looking for someone to lead them in a rebellion. Then there's religious leaders who want to establish the kingdom through moral purity and racial distinctiveness. They're inventing new laws to make sure that they keep to their idea of God's standards. The revolutionaries want to bring God's kingdom through violence. The religious leaders want to do it through moral effort. Who is right? What will God's kingdom look like? Will it ever come? And so it's in this context that Jesus appears. Um, If you've got your Bibles, just flick back to Matthew 1 with me briefly, uh, just a couple of pages back. Because in these early chapters of Matthew, the author emphasizes that here in Jesus is the one who is going to bring God's kingdom. So in chapter 1, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the one through whom all nations will be blessed. In verse 21, just at the turn of the page, uh, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In verse 23, he's called God with us. Matthew's telling us Jesus is God come to save and to bless his people. Then in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, um, Jesus is taken to Egypt. And here, Matthew's doing something quite interesting. He's pointing to Jesus not just as God, but as one of us. Because like God's people in the Old Testament, he is taken to Egypt and is then rescued from Egypt. Matthew seems to be drawing this parallel with the people of Israel that we've been looking at. Then in chapter 3, Jesus is baptised. Now, baptism was a sign of repentance, but Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Why is he getting baptised? Again, it's identifying with God's people. And in chapter 4, he is led into the wilderness for 40 years, sorry, 40 days He's um, tempted with food, and I think this is again supposed to be ringing bells for us. Here is Jesus experiencing temptation in the wilderness, but where God's people failed, as we see in the book of Numbers, here Jesus is perfectly faithful. He identifies himself with God's people, but he succeeds where they failed. Matthew is showing us, here is God's promised king, the man who will rule God's people perfectly. And it's none other than God himself. And so, as chapter four ends, and we come to our, um, the reading we just had, Jesus starts to preach, and he says, repent, because the kingdom of God is, sorry, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's near, it's coming. Jesus is God's king sent to establish this kingdom, to bring the rule of heaven down to earth. He's here. The one that the whole Old Testament has been leading up to, the faithful one who succeeds where the people of the Old Testament failed. And he's bringing the kingdom, the kingdom that we all long for, even if we don't realize it because this kingdom is the place of blessing. Abraham's promised in you all nations will be blessed. Well, here is the blessing coming. Happiness, a world made new, problems dealt with, sin sorted. And Jesus walks around, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing the sick, and crowds follow him. And so, this is the context for um, this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount um, that we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks. So, chapter 5, verse 1 Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Matthew continues to emphasize the authority of this man, Jesus. He's on a mountainside. Again, in the Old Testament, it's on the mountainside, the mountains like Sinai, like the temple, that God comes to meet with his people, to speak to them. Jesus sits down like the uh, teachers of the law did in the synagogues. Here is God's king, and he's announcing God's kingdom. And he's speaking with God's authority. But the question for us is, are we going to listen? Perhaps you're here and you're new to the Christian faith. Maybe you'd call yourself a Christian, maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you have big questions. You're not sure whether there is a God. You're not sure whether the Bible is true or whether any of this is even relevant to you. Why listen to what Jesus has to say? Isn't his just one opinion among many and a pretty ancient one at that? What has he got to say about the mess that this world is in? Can he really fix it? Well, Matthew has been building the evidence for us. Think about everything he said about Jesus. He's the promised saviour, God's promised king. The whole story of the Bible has been building to this moment. Maybe you're not convinced, but given everything we've seen so far, isn't it worth listening to see? Back then, the crowds were gathering. They were intrigued. There was something about this man. Will you listen in with them? See what you think? But perhaps that's not you. Perhaps uh, you're here and you're a follower of Jesus already. And looking ahead at the next few verses, um, perhaps you, like me, uh, think these verses are pretty familiar. In fact, those who've been around at Magdalen Road for a couple of years might remember two years ago we um, even preached a sermon on the Beatitudes. Um, So are we going to listen? Is it just familiar words to us? Or will we let Jesus' words challenge us afresh? This is God's king. Speaking about God's kingdom. With God's authority. Will we listen? So, the crowd are gathered. Jesus calls his disciples to him and he starts to preach. And the crowd's ears, hopefully like yours, are peeled The Jews have been waiting for centuries for God's promised king to appear. They've been ruled by empire after empire after empire, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. They're longing for change. And aren't we in a similar situation? We all know the state of the world, the suffering, the violence, the fear of the future. We want a new world, a fixed world. We put our hope in politics and political movements but think of the soundtrack of Tony Blair's first landslide things can only get better ironically a song written by a band called D Ream dream because that is all it is but here here is a man who speaks with God's authority here is a man who confronts the brokenness of the world by healing the sick. Here is God's chosen king set to bring about his kingdom where all wrongs will be made right. And this is what he says, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now imagine with me for a moment that you are one of the crowd sat there on that mountainside listening to Jesus. Imagine the anticipation. Jesus could be the one, the one you've been waiting for the one to overthrow the Romans, the one to restore God's rule on earth, a new Moses calling a nation out of slavery, establishing God's rule once more, or a new King David leading an army against God's enemies. And Jesus speaks, and perhaps your elation subsides a little, because here is your new Messiah's manifesto, and it sounds weak, blessed are the poor the mourners the meek how is this going to change the world what kind of kingdom is this so we've seen that Jesus is God's king announcing God's kingdom speaking with God's authority but as we look at what he says we see the unexpected upside down nature of God's kingdom Jesus is announcing a counter-revolution. That's the uh, name we've given for this series. A revolution that's unlike any other. Because it's a revolution of the poor, the weak, the mourning, the humble. But it's a revolution that will ultimately bring heaven down to earth. It's a revolution that starts now as people join God's new kingdom and start living as its citizens. But it's a revolution that's not over until the king comes back. We live in the midst of it. So now let's look um, and get an overview of what Jesus has to say about what the kingdom is like. So first, verses 3 to 6, we see how to enter the kingdom Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do you enter this new society, God's kingdom of heaven? Through poverty of spirit. It's a recognition that you yourself cannot change yourself, let alone change the world. Say that again. It's a recognition that you yourself cannot change yourself. Let alone change this world. You are powerless. You are weak. It grates, doesn't it? We live in a world that hates that idea. We tell each other, you can do it. You can do it. If you put your mind to it, you can do anything you want. Salvation is within your reach. Whatever that salvation looks like for you. Giving up smoking. Losing weight. Or maybe it's getting married. Getting divorced. We are the masters of our fate. The captains of our souls. We are in charge. We can do it. We can save ourselves. Whatever that looks like. Except we can't. There's some measure of control and success sure but so much is completely beyond our grasp. Do you know that feeling of wanting, longing to change? To not stop always snapping at people. To give up pornography. To stop fantasizing about that new car, that new house, that new husband. Being poor in spirit is recognizing that there's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. We need God to change our hearts. Next, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Those who recognize their sin mourn for it. The problem with this world isn't just out there. It's in here. The Times newspaper once asked its readers, what is wrong with the world? You may have heard G.K. Chesterton's famous reply, dear sir, I am yours sincerely. He's right. To enter the kingdom of heaven, we need to recognize that left to ourselves, we would mess it up. We need to mourn our sin. And the good news of this verse Is that we will be comforted because in god's kingdom his new society sin will ultimately be dealt with there is a day coming when those in god's kingdom will be free from sin forever now this humbles us we could never enter god's kingdom on our own in our own strength through our own achievements no god is the one who makes it possible And so that leads to the next verse, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When we recognize our own meekness, sorry, our own weakness and our frailties, it humbles us. It should make us meek that is, humble, gentle, forgiving and forbearing, patient with others. When you know your weakness, how can you look down on others? When you see your sin, how can you criticise others? When you know God's forgiveness and grace, While well, you show it to others. And it's people like this who inherit the earth, that new world that we're all longing for. It belongs to those who humbly admit their weakness and sin and give themselves to God. Just imagine, again with me, what that would be like. A world where no one stood on their rights. A world where people forgave. A world where everyone cared for each other without thought of the cost. That's just something of what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Do you want to live in that world to be that kind of person well the next verse says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled this thirst for righteousness it's a longing for everything to be made right again and a longing that we might be made right again a desire to be forgiven and a desire to be fixed A hunger for a heart made new and a thirst for a world made new and what great news jesus has for us if that's your desire he promises you'll get it blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled so in this first section we see how to enter the kingdom the kingdom that god has come to bring Um, That Jesus has come to bring. And it starts by being poor in spirit, by mourning your sin, by being humbled, and by receiving God's promise to deal with this fallen world and these failing hearts of ours. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, what do you make of this? Isn't this the world that you want? Isn't this the world that you long for for yourself? If you've never trusted in Jesus before, can I challenge you and ask, why not? Being part of this kingdom, well, this is the path of blessing. This is the life that we long for. Next, we learn about life in the kingdom. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the Are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, one danger with these verses is that we forget where we've just come from. We've heard that entering the kingdom means humbly accepting that our salvation is not from ourselves. But when we get to these verses, it sounds like we're starting to earn blessings for ourselves again. Blessed are the merciful. That they will receive mercy like the religious leaders of the day might we interpret these as establishing our own kingdom we're going to try really hard to be merciful and therefore God will show us mercy but if we remember where we've come from actually we see that these verses flow out of the blessings of the first half God shows us mercy now And so we become merciful. And it's the ones who have become merciful whom God shows his mercy to in the future. So it all flows out of God's mercy to us. God promises to fill us with righteousness. Verse 6. And so verse 8 makes our hearts pure. So that when the kingdom of heaven finally comes in its fullness, we will see God. And with that glorious day coming, we will work for peace. Now, between individuals, between nations, in our communities, isn't that a word for us this week? To be peacemakers. Now, there'll be plenty of time in the coming weeks to dig into the specifics of all of these verses Uh, But for now, uh, let's move on and briefly see others' reactions to life in the kingdom. Because here is a surprise. You would think having set up um, such a beautiful picture of life in the kingdom in contrast to uh, the pictures the world offers, the dystopias um, uh, that I referred to at the start, you would think that actually this is so attractive that everyone would want to be a part of it. Except, of course, we know, both from our own experience and from the words of the Bible, that that isn't the case. So as we read on, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How do many people react to the kingdom? They resist it. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now that righteousness could be the distinct lives of Christians showing up the lives of those around them. Or it could be the apparent offensiveness of Jesus' teaching on sex or on money. It could be that people feel insulted by the news that they're not good enough for God's kingdom by themselves. Whatever the reason, those who are in God's kingdom should expect persecution. But notice too, it's particularly persecution because of Jesus. Verse 11, Blessed are you when people... Insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Life in the kingdom means following the king. And to many people, that is the most offensive thing of all. We want to rule our own lives. Not live the way some king tells us to. But isn't this rebelliousness? At the heart of everything that is wrong with the world, Jesus is the loving King of the world, but we reject him. If you like, we steal the crown from his head and put it on our own heads. We want to do things our way, but when I want to do things my way and you want to do things your way, well, what happens then? We clash, we fight. We fight for the crown, and it gets ugly. It leads to horrific wars, but also harsh words and everything in between. From the international to the internal, conflict abounds. But when we put the king back in his rightful place, suddenly the world can work again. I am able to put your needs before my own because Jesus promises that he will meet all my needs. I'm able to forgive you and bear with you because I've been shown mercy by the true king. And so that leads us to the last section we'll be looking at. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Those in the kingdom of heaven will face persecution. But at the same time, they are to be salt and light in this world. Again, there will be more time in subsequent weeks to dig into the details of this. But for now, notice that being salt and light is a call to be distinctive and different in a way that's noticeable by the world. And that ultimately leads to people glorifying your father. In heaven. We said earlier that this kingdom has started, but it isn't yet here. The revolution has started, but the revolution is not yet finished. And in that in between time, it's us, it's the people of God, it's the church who are that foretaste of what the kingdom will ultimately be like. We point as distinctive. Uh, people to a world around us about what God's kingdom is like and what Jesus the king is like. We are salt and we are light. So here is God's promised king announcing God's promised kingdom. Not like anything that the world expects. It's a true counterculture that we are all invited to enter. It begins by acknowledging our poverty and our need of forgiveness it gives birth to a radical and righteous life lived out in front of the world a life of purity and of peace it will bring persecution but it will ultimately bring much blessing as we and many others give glory to the father in the kingdom of his son the kingdom of heaven come down to earth the inheritance of every one who believes this is the blessed life. This is the kingdom of God, the life of blessing, promised from the ages. And now, Jesus, over these weeks, we're going to see more and more of what it means to be part of it. What a God we have. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you honour and praise. Please bring your kingdom soon. We want your ways to be known in our life together, in our nation and in our world, so that people might taste and see something of the life of heaven on earth. Give us everything we need for life and godliness, and forgive us where we fail to live with you as King. Please, would our church here at Magdalen Road be a community of forgiveness and humility? Help us to help each other to resist sin, the world, and the devil. It's your kingdom that we belong to, Lord, and your spirit who helps us and changes us. And so we give all the glory to you, in Jesus' name. Amen.